This episode of Overthinking Movies contains full spoilers for Kong Skull Island, Godzilla 2014, and Godzilla King of the Monsters. Welcome to Overthinking Movies. I'm your overthinking host, Brandon Hain. Hey, 10th episode anniversary! Ooh, some people do that, right? Well, this is certainly a special episode. We're on the final installment on the road to Godzilla vs. Kong, and in this mega-sized episode, we will be covering all three movies in Legendary Entertainment and Warner Brothers Pictures' Monsterverse. Kong Skull Island, Godzilla 2014, and Godzilla King of the Monsters. First up, we will be doing Kong Skull Island. This was the second movie released in this cinematic universe. However, chronologically, it takes place first. Because just like with our King Kong movie last week, this one takes place in the 1970s. It also has a pretty all-star cast, which includes Tom Hiddleston, Brie Larson, John Goodman, Samuel Jackson, and John C. Riley. My loyal co-host Alex Ulacki joined me as we covered yet another good giant ape film. So we're going to start off with a general consensus of our thoughts on the movie before we get into the story and the spoilers. I liked this movie. I thought it was solid. I, I thought it was good. I don't feel highly enthusiastic about it. It kind of reminds me of a lot of the Marvel films in that there's a lot of things that are good. There's a lot. Of, there are some things that I didn't think were that great, and it kind of just is fine. It's a fine movie. Yeah, you hit it with the Marvel films. Not only does the quality end up being comparable to a lot of the more recent Marvel films, but even in tone, I would say this felt like a Marvel film and somewhat in structure too. But again, not necessarily as good as a lot of Marvel films would be. My first experience with this film was watching it on shortly after it had come out. They had it playing on an airplane when I was on like a two hour flight or something. So I watched the whole movie there. I thought it was, it was it was good, I guess. I don't know. I, I wasn't crazy about it. When I rewatched it now, I liked it a little bit more than the first time, I think. Though I was also, I wasn't just sitting down and eating popcorn. I was kind of like cleaning some stuff while I had it in front of me. And it actually, um, it's definitely a lot of fun if you're not totally invested in this movie, is how I would phrase it. It's certainly got its good actors. It's really, really good effects. It's got a good style to it. It's it's a good, nice little monster fighting movie that, you know, I feel like anybody could have a good time with, even if it's not really anything super notable. Because it's a top-end cast, and like he said, the effects look great. And there's not a lot that's actually wrong with it either, but somewhere along the line, without any clunkiness, there's not anything in it that is great either. Yeah, I never really felt like I got a strong reaction to really any of it. Kind of getting into the movie itself. So this isn't a remake of King Kong. It's more like a reboot that takes some of the elements from the other movies. And does more of its own stuff, because clearly this one is just prepping up for Godzilla versus King Kong, so they're already establishing some of the size things that will make it work better, and some of the other lore of the American Godzilla universe. Right, right. It's an entire movie that was made just to make King Kong bigger so he can fight Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, they establish in the movie that he's already this big and he's not done growing either so that they could have him be even larger for that one. 
And it's called Kong Skull Island, and I think it deserves that title well, because even if a lot of the other parts of the movie I feel kind of lukewarm on, the interpretation of Skull Island itself here, I think is the best outside of Peter Jackson's. There is just a lot of detail and personality to Skull Island, and a lot of really interesting monsters. And it's the only only official King Kong entry that finishes the movie on Skull Island, um, as, as far as, like, a working of the original content, barring sequels and things. Just within the reboots, it's the only one that doesn't finish in the big city. Right, right. There is no uh, New York City scene in this movie. However, the first thing that King Kong does when we see him is that he actually destroys a bunch of airplanes. Which is actually really cool. <laughs> I, I, I dug... King Kong's first appearance in here actually a lot. I mean, in general, like like I said, the effects are great. Kong looks awesome. Um, it's a good, it's another, just like with the Peter Jackson film, it's another good combination of motion capture with really high-end CGI. Backtracking on that a bit, like every King Kong movie, most of it, the beginning, start after, well, in this one, there's a, a short little teaser about the island that takes place in the 40s, but it does do the, the city stuff, and it's... Uh, It doesn't dawdle on that, and actually some of the build-up to going to the island is fairly engaging. It's well shot, kind of funny, and I think that it was probably the most engaging build-up to going to the island, in my opinion. Again, it's also fairly brief. Yes. I mean, the thing that helps this movie a lot is that it has a lot of style. It, it's fast-paced. There's a lot of, like, quick cuts. There's a lot of use of music, like, in music video-style editing and shots to try to slowly get through the story that help to give it energy. And, um, put the tone into the 70s as well. Yes, because the first scene in the movie takes place in the 40s, in the later years of World War II, showing an American soldier and a Japanese soldier landing on Skull Island and dueling before they run into King Kong, cut to, and then there's a montage over the opening credits going through sort of history in that time leading up to the movie's actual date, which is 1973. Uh, that little montage was a lot of fun, too. I liked it. There's a lot of, to me, a lot of intention and a lot of, I feel like a decent bit of love put into this film. Even if I can't really say I'm a big proponent for it or I was super into it, I definitely feel like the people that made this movie, or at least the director, had a vision and kind of cared about what they were making. Right. And again, the acting in it, too, it's a lot of fun. Goodman and Jackson carry it pretty far. I I feel like the performances should have carried the movie even further than it did, because, like I said, Jackson, Goodman and O'Reilly are, or C. Riley, they're all really great. I feel like one of the problems for me was that a large portion of the cast are not very developed. You sort of get who they are very early in the movie and they kind of stay that way throughout most of it. And characters like Samuel Jackson's General and uh, John C. Riley's character, they're all... And it's not just their performance that makes them stick out, though that's part of it. It's because writing-wise, those are the characters that sort of have the most going on. Right. With Jackson having recently been pulled out of Vietnam and feeling like he's failed to achieve the victory that he needed and is going into madness ready to do anything for another chance. That was good. 
that's the interesting thing is that there's no there's no Carl Denham character in this movie. However, there are two characters that sort of that have similar motivations to Carl Denham, and that's John Goodman's character, which is the character that starts the expedition to go see the island in the first place, and then the other Samuel Jackson's general who dis, who uh, takes on a grudge against King Kong for killing his soldiers to obsessive degrees. Because obviously, it's not just killing his soldiers that's motivating Samuel Jackson. It's Samuel Jackson wanting to feel like he accomplished something after getting pulled out of Vietnam. And then uh, John C. Riley's character is great. John C. Riley is uh, not even introduced until late into the movie, and to me, he was actually my favorite character of the bunch. He is actually the American soldier we saw at the beginning of the movie in the 40s that got trapped on Skull Island and lived there for decades. And he is living with the natives, which is actually kind of surprised this movie had natives. <laughs> I honestly forgot that they did. Again, they weren't introduced until later, and they don't really do much or say anything. But when I, uh, when I, when they did show them here, I really liked what they did with them. They definitely felt authentic too. Right, right, right. Like their their whole personality is that they don't talk too much, and I I like their introduction too. How they like have coded themselves in the environment to camouflage. Yeah, that that was really cool. And John C. Riley is just sort of living among them and I guess just sort of gets them. And and, he, and yeah, he's a fun character. How would I describe John C. Riley's character? He's not very with it, but at the same time, he's really the only one with a good understanding of what, what the island is at the same time. He also clearly has been sort of losing it over the years because there is little moments of madness in him. There's parts where he is tapping the soldiers on the shoulder going, we're all going to die, but I'm, I'm happy I'm dying with you guys. We're all going to die. I like the one where um, he just casually tells the guy, or he asks him if he's all right, and uh, his response is something like, I'm going to stab you tonight. What? <laughs> nah, just kidding with you. And then he just gives him this intense look too. <laughs> Yeah, he's, he just has random moments of madness. And then later on in the movie, we have the scenes with him using the samurai sword given to him by the Japanese soldier that he eventually became friends with living on the island, showing that he clearly had learned stuff from his friend being able to wield the sword. So just a lot of little moments that, sh that do well to add some depth to that character, which I kind of wish was given to some of the others. Because our other characters, which is Tom Hill Hilson playing Conrad, who's, I guess, a former soldier and tracker. He can, like, track soldiers. That's his thing. Yeah, that's right, because he gets top billing for the movie, too, I think. But I almost didn't even... I wouldn't necessarily have told you that was, like, the main character. Definitely doesn't stand out at all. He's fine, and I would kind of say the same of Brie Larson's character, the reporter. Like she has, maybe she has like slightly more to her. She's a she's an anti-war photographer that gets roped into all of this, and because it's a King Kong movie, she of course forms a connection with King Kong. However, unlike other King Kong movies where it's where it's like King, she gets kidnapped by natives, and King Kong sees her and develops an infatuation for her. Here, she tries to rescue one of the other monsters when they're trapped under one of the crashed planes, and King Kong sees her saving this monster. He helps her save the monster, and then he walks off. And after that, King Kong seems to develop sympathy for her because he knows that she has good intentions. Yeah, because I think they build him up as already being an ape with good intentions. Uh, that lives on that island. I got that he saw her trying to help the water buffalo, which he already was probably going to help, but he 
appreciated it. Yep, because Kong in this movie, his existence is that there's been a large race of other Kongs, which is something that they've hinted at in other King Kong movies, that he's the last of a race of giant apes. But here, it was a race of giant apes that defended the island against a series of monsters called the, what is it, Skull... Skull crawlers, according to John C. Riley. He says you can call it them if you want. He thought it sounded cool, but but I don't know. He never said it out loud before. Maybe it's not. <laughs> yeah, I like that moment. So yeah, Kong's whole purpose is to defend the island from the skull crawlers because if anything happened to Kong, the leader of the skull crawlers would rise from the island, which uh, when they set up that that will happen, you know it's going to happen. And the skull crawlers, when we eventually see them, they have a, they have a neat design. Like that's the thing. All the monsters in this movie look pretty cool. There's giant water bubbles buffalo encased in moss and and remains of trees we have yeah a lot of giant bugs they have the giant spider that literally steps on somebody and impales them with its long leg my favorite design was on the it was kind of like a stick bug but because of its large size it was basically an entire tree now it doesn't really do anything but i just thought it was really cool yeah, had, had a really cool design. There's, I feel like the movie does a good job making the most of Skull Island and the location and what kind of monsters would live there. Because especially after we just got done with King Kong 1976, where the only other giant monster was like a giant snake that just shows up at one point. This, to me, was more of what I kind of wanted out of a Skull Island King Kong movie. Now, they don't commit to dinosaurs in this one. A lot of things are just giant-sized creatures that we have today, like insects, arachnids, and water buffalo. Though they do have those flying reptiles that look kind of pterodactyl-like. I'm not sure if they were supposed to be pterodactyl or not, because it would kind of make more sense for them not to have all the extinct creatures from that era since they're not going with it though they also do show the skull of a triceratops in one of the boneyards which would imply that dinosaurs had lived up on that island until somewhat recently so that was that was different yeah there's a stronger focus kind of like the 76 kong on not necessarily focusing on prehistoric animals and more i guess quotation marks realistic animals I really liked, too, that the the giant spider, its legs were like bamboo, so it was able to sort of hide amongst the bamboo despite being a giant. Yeah, with its body literally well above the canopy line. Yeah, yeah, like, I believe this is a PG-13 movie, and yet the violence is pretty graphic, and there's quite a bit of strong swearing in the film. Yeah, I don't think any of the violence was too bad up until the climax, but I don't know, maybe we'll cover that once we get to it. And just to reiterate, we'll start back from the first battle on the island. I think my favorite scene is the first battle with King Kong with the helicopters flying in. That, to me, visually was really cool. Not just not just that their portrayal of the CG King Kong and everything like that, but just some of the way it was shot actually worked pretty well for me. Um, just some of the back and forth from the helicopter to the first appearance of King Kong's uh, fists and then seeing him again the sun or the sunset or whatever it was and i really liked when he grabs the helicopter and this guy falls out of it into his mouth but before he chomps down it cuts back to elsewhere on the island this guy taking a bite out of a sandwich little little stuff like that was a lot of fun 
Yeah, yeah. There's some really good cinematography in this film. I think one of my, I think my favorite shot during the fight with King Kong and the helicopters was a part where it does like the 360 rotating shot, where it's rotating around King Kong, but as it's rotating, it stops at each of the planes along the way, and it, it just looks great. I will say they use some uh, slow motion in that battle, and at first it didn't bother me too much, which is, I don't like slow motion. There's generally, unless it's essential to the plot that you're going to overlap a lot of thoughts on top of somebody, you don't really need it. And I didn't mind it at first here. It, it was kind of cool, but it, it continues through the movie and it, it's really overused throughout and it and by near the climax i kind of wanted to be done with the slow motion yeah it's something that we see way too often today where it to me the impact of action would be greater if there was no slow motion king kong rips down the helicopters and the team gets split up into different groups exploring skull island it's it ends up being like a group of the soldiers and then the the tracker played by tom hiddleston uh brie larson the reporter and kind of just like the the more intellectual group (laughs) i guess a good portion of the movie is that just them exploring encountering different monsters king kong sort of just shows up along the way and i did think it was ridiculous that so many times in this movie king kong just shows up like they don't hear him coming he just kind of appears (laughs) which is especially ridiculous in this movie when he's the size of a mountain My thing, too, is there, there, I didn't pick up on the lack of sound as much, but there was one shot where, like, he had been next to them and he's going away, and then it cuts and he's on the other side of this big mountain valley where there's, like, a V and he's going through the bottom of it. The V is completely covered in foliage and trees, and none of them have been destroyed or stepped on at all, I would appear, so I don't know how he got over there tiptoeing. I have no idea. Like what one of the scenes in particular was uh when Jack, one of the one of the soldiers uh who is who finds himself on his own is running through this large like gigantic pond uh getting to the other side of it and then King Kong is just there <laughs> behind him going to get a drink. I guess King Kong is just so big that he doesn't look down to see that the soldier is standing right there so the soldier has enough time to hide. And then it leads to hey, another really good like effects-wise, pretty awesome-looking little scene of King Kong fighting a giant squid, which lasts about like a few seconds, <laughs> and then he just starts eating it. That was cool, but I don't think that fight necessarily needed to last any longer either. It achieved what it wanted to, and it was pretty cool. And then it ended, and King Kong gets to have some sushi, pretty much. Yeah, it was interesting watching him suck up the squid's tentacles like spaghetti. He walks away, dragging the squid with him. And then just like the original King Kong movies, a good portion of the rest is just like... Miscellaneous adventures on the island. Yeah, miscellaneous adventures on the island with giant monsters picking off some of the crew here and there. You said you liked the spider a good bit? Yeah, I thought the spider with the bamboo legs is pretty cool. I really like its introduction where it like impales that guy through the mouth. I I thought that was cool. I agree about the introduction. I think its large size made it less menacing than some other spiders, though. Sure. Usually when you have a giant spider attacking people, if you want to build up some good suspense or whatever, it's maybe like the size of a bus or something so that its fangs are menacing coming at you like uh, Shelob in The Lord of the Rings or Aragorn Aragorn in uh, Harry Potter. That size usually works the best, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, where you 
are kind of face level with all of those eyes and they're coming at you. But here it's towering over them. So in some respects, it can't even really see them blow itself. So it's just kind of stomping around and they just cut its legs and shoot it. It's because to, when it does go after that one guy, I don't even know what it like. It seemed like it like shot web down at it, but it looked kind of organ-like and like pink and gooey i'm not sure what that was and i'm not even sure if it was actually a spider because when it pulled it in closer to it it had like little scorpion type claws it almost seems like one of those little arachnid things that are in reality usually some of the smallest size of a pin or something maybe i don't know exactly what it was i mean i guess it's small in comparison to the other things on the island I don't know. The smallest thing was actually the, the water buffalo, oddly enough, I think. So it's that adventure. There was meeting up with the natives, which I think we covered. Then there was the first battle with the skull crawlers, which I think was my favorite scene with the skull crawlers, where they're in that thick, foggy area that is apparently um, covered with some sort of fumes that might be flammable, as they illustrate when that guy tosses his cigarette butt to the ground and there's like a mini little explosion there and the skull crawler comes out of the ground and starts going after them in this thick green mist and ends up actually eating one of the main characters which i forgot actually happens especially that at that point in the movie i mean it was probably over the halfway point but it still wasn't by any means already getting to the end and she had had a camera and it starts flashing inside of the skull crawler in the distance which was giving away its position and i thought was pretty cool yes yeah the flash going off in the distance yeah it swallows uh john goodman whole and john goodman was sort of a character where there was some grayness well i'm not even sure if you would call it gray but essentially he reveals that he knew that there were giant monsters on this island when he started his expedition he just wanted to prove to the rest of the world that he wasn't crazy that was his whole plan and he ended up getting a lot of people killed in the process so you know Although he seemed to be redeeming himself a little bit before he had been getting eaten. Kind of like Carl Denham in Son of Kong, he seemed to have got to an understanding that maybe King Kong wasn't just something that needed to be killed because it was part of the ecosystem as he had been discussing it with uh, John C. Riley and some of the others. I was thinking he was kind of changing his tone a little bit. Like, the reason they end up going to the Skull Crawlers in the first place is that Samuel Jackson is like, I still haven't found Jack from my crew of men, so we have to go back for him. So they end up going through basically the lair of the, of the Skull Crawlers, which looks, which is literally a graveyard for King Kong's people. So a lot of the action is cool because it's like them hiding in giant ape skulls and the remains of, and other like ape bones while the creatures are coming after them. And the skull crawlers, like to give a description, they're basically like giant lizard type creatures where their heads have no skin. It just looks like a skull. Right. And they have two big limbs that they crawl on and then just kind of a tail behind it. And the two limbs can, I think they'd mostly function as legs, but sometimes they can grab onto things like arms too. And it, that's just entirely how they, they move. And earlier in the film, we actually, the, the way we get introduced to the skull crawlers is that uh, Jack is eaten by one of them. So then here we get a scene where one of the skull crawlers regurgitates his skull, which is pretty gruesome. Yeah, that, that was a little bit gnarly. For the description of them too, this is funny, I'd say their head was 
long. At some points, like the top of them kind of looked like the Spinosaurus from Jurassic Park 3. And I actually was thinking of that while I was watching the movie too, because the shot with the camera going off inside of its belly reminded me of in Jurassic Park 3 when they start to hear the cell phone again, because the Spinosaurus had eaten a guy whose cell phone had kept going off. And then the Spinosaurus is standing there staring at the bunch of them. That gimmick worked even better in Jurassic Park 3 because that takes place well after he eats that guy. So it gives you time to try to put that together. Whereas the flashing of the camera is immediate in um, Skull Island, but it, it still works again because that gives them a way to immediately try to keep track of it because they're immediately in a fight with it. So it leads to a big action scene of everybody shooting or John C. Riley using a samurai sword or all of them using their own weapons to try to take them on. Mostly not doing so well as it seems that they don't have a strong reaction to their bullets. And so there's a scene where Tom Hiddleston takes John C. Riley's samurai sword. Wasn't there a scene in here where John C. R- where he takes John C. Riley's samurai sword and goes slashing some of the monsters? Probably. <laughs> A a lot of things happen in this movie that might not necessarily be memorable, but uh, that was one moment where I was kind of getting sick of the slow-mo because every single time you would cut one of the monsters, it would slow it down, and I was like, okay, I get it. I think to defeat the monsters in that scene, isn't that where the woman takes the lighter and turns it on and she throws it into its mouth and for some reason it explodes then even though they had just been shooting like flamethrowers at it and it wasn't burning enough? She throws a lighter, the lighter hits the ground, which I guess is where the flammable material is and it lights up one of the skull crawlers. I mean, I would have thought that you could have shot the flamethrower to ground like that and that would work much faster. (laughs) I guess, uh, but that's the method that they use. So then that takes us to the last battle of the people versus King Kong, where basically Samuel L. Jackson is like preparing to fight it and standing and looking at it, getting ready to to take on King Kong because this is his Vietnam. Yes, uh, because what ends up happening is they get through the Skullcrawler's base and then Tom Hiddleston reveals to Samuel Jackson's character that we, we found Jack. He is dead. So the, the soldier you're looking for, he's dead. And Samuel Jackson goes, oh, we're still going to fight Kong anyway. And then he holds up the rest of the his other dog tags to show that he killed all of my men. I have to go get him. But it's clear that his motivation is more than just the deaths of his men to fight King Kong. So yeah, he ends up strong arming his soldiers into coming with him and the rest of the crew make their own path and this is after several shots by now of king kong gazing into the pretty almost aurora borealis looking lights above and having some moments with some of the characters so we know that king kong's not the bad guy by now and samuel l jackson just needs to to give it up already but he he refuses to and he takes on king kong and then he dies yeah, yeah. I mean, he actually does succeed. That's true. He lights up the water. Like, what exactly was going on there? Did he pour some of the stuff from the skull crawler's base into the water to ignite it? Yeah, something like that. Either that or they had their own gasoline with them, something like that. But that, that again, actually visually just came across as pretty cool again, that whole battle there. Yeah, yeah, where King Kong is, is wading through the water, the flames hit him, and he, and he starts struggling through the flames until eventually they cause, I guess they do that much damage to him that he then collapses. And Samuel Jackson then with, of course, King Kong's face landing just a few feet from him. 
he goes, okay, men, we got we to take him out. And Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson and the gang are like, no, you can't kill King Kong. He's good. And then the moment they illustrate their point and tell some of his guys not to work with him anymore and that King Kong is their protector, as soon as that happens, the big skull crusher, the big evil one who they've been talking about comes out of the water to challenge humanity. Yes, the the leader of the skull crawlers that I guess sensed that King Kong fell down. So it comes out of the water and starts coming after Samuel Jackson. The rest of the crew, even Tom Hiddleston stays behind still trying to show sympathy for, for Samuel Jackson, but eventually he just gives up and runs away. And Samuel Jackson, despite focusing on the skull crawler coming right near him, he sees King Kong start to get up and he still cares about killing King Kong. Yeah. He never gets a chance to detonate his explosives. King Kong just stomps on him immediately and kills him. There's a lot of people getting stomped on in this movie. Yeah, and then there's that other guy later goes to sacrifice himself by strapping a grenade to him or something and standing there expecting to get eaten by one of the skull crawlers, but then it just happens to slap him with his tail and he flies into a mountain in the distance and explodes. In a tragic event for a character that I don't even really remember that well, who seemed to be trying to have some moment, though. He was one of the soldiers that had a few comedic moments with one of the other soldiers, and he was the kind of off one. I- I'm trying to sort of describe his personality, but I, I, it didn't really leave a strong impact on me. The giant skull crawler becomes coming after all of them after it beats up King Kong and he tries to sacrifice himself to bide them time, but his sacrifice just fails. He just gets whipped away by the skull crawler, which which was kind of interesting since usually those scenes are the scenes where they would be biding time for the other person by exploding on the monster. If this was supposed to comment on those scenes that many movies have where a character sacrifices themselves and ultimately those type of scenes feeling kind of contrived, I, I support that. <laughs> but uh, King Kong, of course, eventually wakes up and he and, and there's a point where he gets pushed into the water and gets uh, chained up by what I only assume was the chains from like boat anchors that are from like this, these series of boats hidden beneath the water. Right, because they seem to be attached to, like, giant boat propellers at the ends, I think. Yeah, and, like, he eventually breaks through those chains, and then one of the boat motors gets kind of stuck on his hand, and he uses it to beat the skull crawler with. Yeah, because it's literally still attached to the chain, which somehow is still wrapped around his, his arm, and he when he moves his arm, he can, like, whiplash the whole boat propeller at his enemies, like... Uh, sort of like a nunchuck or a whip or something. We were talking about in the Son of Kong episode how King Kong's son was a smarter character because he was smart enough to pick up a stick. Well, the King Kong in this movie picks up a giant tree and then uses his hand to shave off the branches and then uses it as a weapon. And then, of course, then he uses the boat motor and it's like, oh, okay, this is this is actually a, a smarter King Kong than we're used to seeing. <laughs> So what was your feeling of that, just that whole last fight in general? I, I mean, I thought it was a well-choreographed fight. I liked some of the stakes with them, like the one part where King Kong throws the skull crawler into the mountain and it knocks Brie Larson over the edge. And little moments like that, but overall, I, I thought the fight was all right. So it doesn't, that, that climactic fight isn't your favorite action sequence in the movie. I wouldn't say so. I would sort of agree with you that I'm, I would either go for the fight with the airplanes I thought just was better shot and more interesting to look at, 
or uh, I, honestly, and I know this is going to sound kind of weird because it was such a short scene, but I just really like the effects and just the choreography of the fight with the giant squid. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. That, like I said, that gave me all I wanted, and it did that really fast. I feel like the fight with the skull crawler, especially when I first watched it on the airplane, I just felt like it went on and on. Although I don't think it actually was a particularly long fight, especially if you compare it to... Like, we had been comparing it to Marvel movies before, and if you go to some of those last battles, they can take, like, 20 minutes sometimes. I liked the fight more this time than when I had first watched it. I don't know. It still is among my least favorite action sequences in the movie, even though the thing with the propellers is kind of cool. Yeah, the thing with him beating the creature with the engine was neat. And then at one point, he does the classic King Kong thing where he starts trying to break its jaw. But that doesn't work. And then he basically takes one of the propellers and starts holding it. And he like slices the creature's neck open with it. And I felt by that point the creature should have died. But it kept fighting. There were so many scenes during that fight where everything would quiet down. King Kong would be doing something to help another character or something. Or we get another scene with the human characters. And then it would just get back up again. And start fighting King Kong again. Which went on and on. It didn't work. Sometimes those sequences will have, like, them throwing it and they think, like, it fell off a cliff or into space or just something happens and they thought it died in an explosion and then it comes back and that's usually all right. But this is like he beats him to death and then it dies, but then it's not really dead. So to me, that doesn't work very well. The way he eventually beats it, I guess, is that uh, Brie Larson... Yeah, the most violent scene in the movie, I'd say. What what ends up happening is, when he finally beats the creature, is that Brie Larson falls into the water, King Kong scoops her up, and then the skull crawler starts trying to go for his hand to eat Brie Larson. So Kong... It, yeah, because it wraps its whole tongue, like, around King Kong's hand, because I guess it has, like, a real long chameleon tongue or something. Something like that. And then King Kong sort of plunges his fist into the skull crawler's throat, and that seems to kill it. And then after it plunges his fist into the throat, he pulls back out, and the tongue is still wrapped around it, so the tongue comes out. And then, like, its whole stomach system that the tongue was attached to seems to come out of it, and then it finally falls over dead. Finally. <laughs> And so Kong saves Brie Larson, he puts her down, and then he walks away, and Tom Hiddleston's holding her, and King Kong does that thing where he turns around and looks at them, but doesn't smile, doesn't show any expression, just sort of snorts and walks away because he's so cool. <laughs> and then the remaining crew get back on their ship, and they finally uh, leave. And, th and that's the thing, we never see them leave the island during the ending. They just sort of, King Kong leaves, they don't try to take him anywhere, they get back on their ship, the end, credits. And then, of course, after the credits, again, doing something because Marvel does it, they have an after credit sequence building up to the next movie, Godzilla vs. King Kong, which, I don't know, when I watched this yesterday, I just really didn't like it because I felt like... I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I mean, it's okay if somebody does it besides Marvel, but it just felt like... Well, basically, it felt like DC trying to do Marvel and failing at it. Yeah, it's basically the scene is is that Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson are in one of those like FBI interview rooms with the one way glass where they're being interrogated, and then it turns out they're being held by Monarch, and Monarch is the society, the, the organization that John Goodman was was working for that just sort of 
tries to find and locate giant monsters. And so their friend, who was uh, who was John Goodman's sort of associate, who doesn't really do a whole lot in the movie, he shows up and is like, oh, no, no, it's us from Monarch. And it turns out there are other big monsters besides Kong. Look at this. And then he pulls down like a slideshow screen and it shows Godzilla. It shows Rodan. I think it shows Anchorus. Yeah, it shows Mothra. It shows King Hedorah. And it's like, hey, look, look, sequels, sequels. And it was like, yep. Yep, it felt, it, to, to me, it felt contrived. Which, again, I, I don't know what the problem is, because a lot of times at the end of a Marvel movie, it'll even just cut to a different character, like, here's Thor finding his hammer again or something, and I, I don't have a problem with that. I don't know if it's just oversaturated at this point, or it's just so much of a ripoff. I don't know. You might be right that it's just because we've seen this happen so many times at the end of these movies that we're kind of we're kind of just so used to the formula. And to be fair to Kong Skull Island, this was in 2017. So this was before Endgame, this was before Infinity War, this is before that formula may have gotten sour. So maybe back then it wouldn't have had such a sort of negative uh, effect on us. <laughs> back then, that reminds me, actually, um, one of the er- first scenes in the movie is John Goodman outside talking to somebody as all the hippies are protesting Washington. And he's like, yeah, take a look. This is the worst Washington's ever going to be. <laughs> Which, I mean, by 1973 was already supposed to be, like, very ironic. But honestly, just watching this in 2021 instead of 2017 was also super ironic. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of painful. Because, you because you know, they don't put those lines in there without... Obviously a modern intention. Yeah. <laughs> but overall, I'd say, like like Alex and I said, our, with our consensus, it, it's 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 fine. It's a fine movie. It. I have not seen the other Godzilla movies yet. We will be doing those uh, next, uh, Godzilla 2014 and Godzilla King of the Monsters. But if this is sort of the start to that universe, it's fine. I mean, you compare it to the other starts to cinematic universes like The Mummy or Man of Steel, and this is like a masterpiece in comparison. <laughs> well again this one takes place first but godzilla 2014 technically had come out first which well i've seen godzilla 2014 because i've seen like two-thirds of it from the end or like from a third of the way into the end and then i've seen various pieces of it on tv before so i i mean i basically can say i've i've seen it but i'm pretty sure i like skull island better than godzilla 2014 if the movies remain on this path They'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I won't mind watching them, but I hope that they improve. <laughs> I hope they are able to pick up in a way that I can actually feel something from them, but maybe I'm just jaded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just because when I'm, when we were talking about this movie, I mean, there weren't a lot of actual, like a lot of things we hyped up about it were pretty great. I mean, we talked about how spectacular the effects were. A lot of different little bits that came across as really funny or uh, action-packed. But as far as flaws, we said the climax was a bit slow and we said there was some too much slow motion. But, I mean, given that, it sounds like this should be a better film than it was. But I wouldn't recommend it over King Kong 1933 or 2005. I mean, I probably would over 76, but I'm not even sure you would necessarily. I was more emotionally invested in the 76 movie, even if I found that cast of characters way more unlikable. So I don't know. I don't know what it is about Skull Island. I was just kind of like, yeah. King Kong 1976 has a lot more flaws in it. 
but at some point down the line, I don't know if it's just the overuse of um, computer animation in this, but somewhere when they stopped getting things wrong, they weren't doing as much to get things right, perhaps. It's kind of like many of the Marvel movies. To me, part of it just felt like it's something about it was just felt like a very well thought out calculated movie that kind of just bottomed out because there is moments of heart in it. But overall, I'd say it's fine. <laughs> Next up on our list is a movie just called Godzilla from uh, 2014, and also the first movie in this universe. This is an American-made remake of the original Godzilla. I will be talking about this movie solo, as Alex did not want to watch this movie again. Not because he thinks it's bad, but purely due to disinterest. I was slightly more engaged in this movie than he was, but not by much. Godzilla 2014 was directed by Gareth Edwards, who would go on to do Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. It stars Brian Cranston and Aaron Taylor Johnson as our leading men. The gist of the story is that Brian Cranston plays a father who works at a nuclear plant in Japan with his wife. One day, the plant has a strange meltdown, and Cranston loses his wife in the destruction. Then more than a decade passes, and Cranston has become obsessed with learning the truth behind what caused the meltdown, going as far as to sneak into Ground Zero multiple times for evidence. His son, a soldier and also now a father himself, is living with his wife and his son in the U.S. However, he flies to Japan to plead with his father to give up on his obsession. Instead, his father ends up convincing him to come to Ground Zero with him. There, they are arrested by guards and taken to a facility deep in the ruins of the nuclear plant. It turns out a giant monster is housed there, who promptly wakes up and causes havoc. In the destruction it causes, Brian Cranston's character is mortally wounded and dies soon after. And so his son begins trying to escape and get back to his family. Instead, he of course ends up right in the middle of a fight between Godzilla and the creature from the nuclear plant, which is called a MUTO, which stands for Massive Unidentified Terrestrial Organism. They're kind of like giant bugs, basically. Turns out there's a male and a female MUTO, and are journeying across the Earth to find each other. Because of course they plan to mate, and they can only mate when they're in the vicinity of nuclear weapons, because social commentary. Our now leading man, the soldier, is pulled back into the military to disarm a bomb placed by the MUTO at the center of the city, which also happens to be the same city that his family lives in. So the climax involves him trying to get rid of this bomb while Godzilla fights two MUTOs in the background. Godzilla, of course, wins, is treated like a hero, and our lead soldier gets the bomb away from the city just in time when he can't disarm it. I have a lot of mixed feelings about this movie. On one hand, it looks stunning. The effects are wonderful. Godzilla and the monsters look great, and there's some gorgeous shots of destruction. However, that's not most of the movie. That's like the last third. Most of it is the human characters that they slowly try to uncover Godzilla and the other monsters, and I had a hard time bringing myself to care about them. Brian Cranston is really trying as the father, trying a little too hard actually, and his acting kind of borders on campy, but he was definitely the most entertaining human character in the film, until he's killed less than halfway in. And then we're left with his son, who has no charisma or personality, he's just okay. 
I mean, you might be thinking, okay, but by that point of the movie, Godzilla and the monsters are fighting, so that would make up for that, right? It would if the movie was interested in actually showing us the monster fight, because it feels like every single time we get a shot of Godzilla fighting the Muto, it cuts away after a few seconds to show the soldier dealing with the bomb. And because it keeps cutting away every few seconds, it makes it impossible for us to get into the fight or get any sort of idea of the choreography or who's winning or losing. So much of it just happens in the background while the human characters are running from it. In the original Godzilla movies, the humans were usually watching the fight go down from a distance or were setting up their own weapons to fight the monsters while not taking away from the fight itself. In the end, Godzilla 2014 both wants to be a serious movie about the threat of atomic war like the original Godzilla, while also being a silly monster fight movie like the later Godzillas, it just came away just feeling middling to me by the end because it never felt like it settled. I felt pretty much nothing throughout my experience with it. Like, it wants us to feel this reverence for the destruction of atomic war, but it also wants to be like, yeah, Godzilla, he's a hero, despite the fact that he's destroying buildings and killing people. However, despite my feelings on it, I was interested in its sequel, Godzilla King of the Monsters, because it was directed by Michael Daltrey, known for the great Christmas horror movie Krampus that I love. Daltrey has a good eye for creating cool monsters, and has some good dark comedy in his movies. So I was hopeful he could make a Godzilla movie that was actually fun. King of the Monsters also stars fellow Godzilla rivals Mothra, Rodan, and King Hedorah in their first American Godzilla appearances, so that was pretty exciting. Unfortunately, Daltrey only directed King of the Monsters. He didn't write it, which is something I became very apparent of when I started it. While there were things Alex and I did definitely enjoy about it, we were not exactly thrilled as we began our discussion. Uh, so I liked it better than Godzilla 2014? But I think I'm only saying that because I didn't feel any emotions toward Godzilla 2014. I actually felt things watching Godzilla King of Monsters, but they weren't necessarily positive emotions. Yeah, um, I didn't get that many emotions out of this one either. I mean, well, with the 2014 one, I've seen it pretty much before, but it's been a while, and I actually haven't got to see the whole movie in one piece, though I've seen most of it at once, and I went back and saw the beginning at another point. And I just remember the first time watching the 2014 one that the monster battle itself even was pretty dull for me. So at least this one that uses the more interesting Godzilla foes, at least, I mean, the battles were better. <laughs> well, the problem with 2014 and what King of Monsters does improve on is that in 2014, the monster fights are like focused on for a few seconds at a time, and then it just cuts back to the human stuff. Uh, it never focuses on the fight long enough for you to ever get any impression of it. It's always just like a few seconds of Godzilla pushing the Muto back or the Muto jumping on Godzilla, and you never get, like, actual choreography because you never get a chance to see the fight that much. It's always happening, it's always happening in the background. And here, there actually is legitimate fights. I remember not particularly finding the Muto that interesting either. Yeah, neither did I. Okay. <laughs> I didn't find their designs or their characters all that interesting. Here, at least, and I didn't really think they gave a lot of the monsters here enough time for me to really feel a lot of... Like, because, you know, like, we were talking about the, the old Godzilla movies where they had humanized them to a point where they had their own personalities because they were basically acting like goof... Like, they, they were acting like people in a weird way. And here, they're, here they're acting more like monsters. Right. 
but the, the only character I really felt like got a lot of good moments of just like little character bits was King Ghidorah because there's a lot of little moments of his heads interacting with each other. Right, like he's even like the one head's biting at some of the other ones and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Just a lot of little moments of, of them kind of fighting with each other that I thought was fun. Though we still did get Mothra talking to Godzilla, much like in that previous one where Mothra has to convince them all to team up. I didn't necessarily expect to see that in here. There was a lot of references to the to older Godzilla mythos in this movie, I guess you could call it fan service, that I didn't really expect to see. I was thinking about, you know, doing this like the previous ones where we go through the movie scene by scene, but there's so much that happens in this movie that it's like, it's hard to really pin down a good structure to go by. And the human stuff in general, I just, oh, it wasn't that I was unengaged like with the original Godzilla. I was engaged, but only in the sense that I was like, wow, all of these characters are stupid and they keep doing stupider, like interesting, stupider things. So I was engaged to see just how stupid it would get, but <laughs> in terms of the monsters themselves, I felt like I, I, I did want to see a little bit more of them because it was a little too focused on the human stuff like 2014 was. Right. And what you said about, um, well, I don't know if this is actually exactly what you said, but I felt like with the monsters, we still got a lot of closer shots where it would just be Godzilla's hands grabbing Ghidorah's neck and biting down and chomping it, or um, the person looking up at them in the background. Um, a lot of closer up shots. It definitely would not linger on longer full body shots of the monsters, which is something that frequently happened in the older movies. And even in um, King Kong Skull Island, I think we got more of that than we might have here, which is kind of odd to me that we didn't get more full body monster in a movie dubbing itself Godzilla. In the 2014 movie, for most of the movie, he's just barely seen in like, we see like slight parts of his body going around buildings or diving into the ocean like he's some sort of slasher movie monster. <laughs> Well, I mean, that kind of thing worked um, with giant monsters and something like Cloverfield, where it's supposed to be from a person's point of view of something bigger. But in a Godzilla movie, it's not supposed to. It's supposed to. Godzilla doesn't have to feel big as much as humans have to feel small, I would almost say, with a lot of the older stuff. The other problem was is that in Cloverfield, a part of it was you didn't really know what this monster was or what it looked like. So a lot of the moments of it sort of showing up were, were kind of hinting at, oh, what is this thing? What We know what Godzilla looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all know what Godzilla looks like by now. And they thankfully don't linger on that too much in this movie. They kind of just get into it since we already know who Godzilla is. And a lot of, and the movie does go off of the 2014 film. I, I actually expected it to be more disconnected, but no, it, it, it starts off like Batman versus Superman, where the first scene is the destruction of the city from a battle happening in the last movie, but now with new characters reacting to the destruction. That will uh, be our focus. If you know anything about either of us, if Brandon says... Anything is similar to Batman versus Superman. That means it's not good. <laughs> not good things are to follow. <laughs> There's unfortunately a lot of parallels throughout this movie to the DC Cinematic Universe that were alarming. And also parallels to Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom, which is one of the worst <laughs> blockbusters of probably the last decade or so. I really don't like that movie. And uh, I'll sort of get into what I mean there. So... Man, 
So, like, the, the, the focus on the human characters in this movie is that, like a lot of these Godzilla movies, it focuses on a family. Uh, we, this time we have a daughter and two parents that are, uh, that are divorced. The mother works for Monarch, which in all of these uh, MonsterVerse movies, they're like a secret organization. I, I don't know if they're working for the government or what their deal is, but they're... They are funded by the government to some extent, perhaps independently, because they don't necessarily share all of their findings with the government. Uh, just consider Monarch to be functionally in the story shield as to Marvel, the glue that just makes all the movies be connected, whether it be very blatantly so or not. Shield seeks out superheroes, Monarch seeks out giant monsters to kind of like study them. And after the events of Godzilla 2014, where Godzilla and a bunch of monsters wrecked stuff up and destroyed a lot of things, uh, the US government basically comes to Monarch. They don't see Monarch very necessary anymore because it seems like the proper idea is just to kill all the monsters. They bring Monarch into the government in court, and despite, you know, the government bringing up good points of, okay, we can't, because Monarch is, of course, like, oh, no, we, we need to sympathize with the monsters. We need to, you know, help them and protect them, because they'll, they'll protect us from the other monsters, and the government's like, you all sound crazy, we need to blow up these things. But the movie wants us to be on Monarch's side, so we so we have Monarch just leave the courtroom, despite the government's warnings. So And no, nothing ever comes of that. Like, we never get to see a scene of the government actually dismantling Monarch. We just kind of forget about this after this scene. Because the rest of the movie is just Monarch chasing monsters and fighting against a eco-terrorist organization that is trying to uh, wake up the monsters because they see the monsters as our as the original rulers of the planet. So they want to wake them up so that they can regain their territory over humanity. Well, I think I've seen this plot before What with what they were doing as the human antagonists. And they basically sort of summed it up as these creatures come along every couple of million years or something when the natural life on earth is getting is causing too much damage which um you might think humans are doing with pollution or deforestation or war or whatever it is and naturally they go and destroy a lot of the dominant life and like a forest fire pure beauty natural life comes back and regains its way um so basically it was just that implication that you know, a mass extinction would be good for the world. Maybe not of all people, but of more or less a lot of people. It's kind of like what Rajah Ghoul is sometimes trying to do in Batman. And I think I've seen some James Bond villains on this term. Every now and then this kind of plot comes up, although their argument wasn't really the greatest. They weren't the most well thought out in this in here. None of the human characters in this movie were very well thought out or really developed at all. None of them really have arcs or we, we, we only learn little bits and pieces about them. Like the, the main protagonist, uh, the family I talked about, the, the mother works for Monarch and she's developing a device that I guess her husband originally helped her out with. From what I understand, it was like an echolocation sonar type device that was supposed to be used to keep whales away from the shore. And she manufactured it and and uh, changes it to use it to communicate with giant monsters and she calls it the orca and we first see it used with her using it to communicate with Mothra uh, who we see in her larva form to calm her down to stop killing people which I never really saw Mothra as the killing people type of monster but here 
the first time we see her, she's just, she's killing soldiers and... Uh, I mean, that's because they completely omitted those two tiny women who sing to Mothra and calm Mothra down. What are you going to do without them? Well, they sort of excluded them, but they also referenced them later on. Okay, so she uses the Orca on Mothra. Mothra, whatever frequency she sets it to, Mothra's like, I'm cool with this and calms down, and then the eco-terrorists show up, kill all of the scientists, and then take her hostage with the orca. And I guess just leave Mothra there? I don't know what they even did. But what we learn later on is that the mother didn't get kidnapped by the eco-terrorist. She's actually been planning to work with them all this time because she wants to use her orca to wake up all the monsters. Because she feels that waking up all the monsters, the radiation emanating off of them will heal the planet and make it grow back because human beings are the infection, as we've seen in so many other movies. Which, again, I don't... After her kids started talking to her, though, it kind of made it sound like she either didn't really feel like it was going to be that simple or she never really thought about it that much beforehand because this was clearly going to involve like massive amounts of death they say her whole motivation is that uh, they had they had a son who died in the uh, destruction in the 2014 movie and that's like the whole crux of their motivation for waking up giant monsters <laughs> Yeah, which isn't really good motivation, because I would think you would not want to do that if your son was killed due to a giant monster. Ah, maybe that's just me. Well, that's the problem. It's another one of these moral dilemmas where the dilemma itself is already, like, the character's already making a choice that makes you go, no, this is wrong and dumb. <laughs> Especially dumb. Because... I brought up Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom. That entire movie is a is a story about the characters forming. All I can basically describe it is is dinosaur PETA. It's it's a it's a organization that's like we need to protect the dinosaurs that kill people. So the movie is about them going to the island to save the dinosaurs before the island uh, is destroyed in a volcano. And the reason why I make this comparison is because at the end of the movie, the characters make the decision to release the dinosaurs onto the United States to create a world where people live alongside dinosaurs. <laughs> and it was, it honestly uh, was mind-blowing to me in the sense that I hadn't seen something that stupid in quite some time. Brandon really hates the second Jurassic World, albeit both movies are pretty stupid. Brandon is on the top of the anti-Jurassic World crew. <laughs> I know some people that like that first one. I did not, but I cannot understand why anybody would like the second one. But what I'm saying is, is that this whole idea of we need to live along the side the monsters seems like a flawed concept because it just feels like all of these characters in this movie, and I'm talking about uh, King of the Monsters now, are making decisions based purely on conjecture or assumptions when all we've seen so far is these monsters destroying buildings and killing people and for some reason they see Godzilla as the hero as the good guy despite the fact that in 2014 he was just tearing through buildings without any care in the world how many people did he kill 
Yeah, you know, I found the reasoning and the motivation for all the decision making. I think this was stupid. It was stupider here than it was even in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. I mean, the execution of it was bad in every way, but I got the general gist of why maybe they would make those choices, but not really here, especially the mother. Like, if you're going to have a person want to do that it just should not have been the one whose kid was killed by the giant monster initially yeah which then leads to a scene where the little girl uh her, her daughter decides she's going to take the orca herself and uh lure she's trying to like lure king Kadora. But it's like, because what, what was happening before this is that Godzilla had a fight with King Ghidorah, Godzilla lost, and oh man, so much happens in this silly movie. So after Godzilla loses, King Ghidorah decide, goes on like he's the real king of the monsters now. And so all these other monsters begin waking up and we have, we have Rodan, we have, you know, well, obviously Mothra already woke up. And we, then we have all these other monsters I've never even seen before. I, I have seen the giant spider in one of the old ones. I think it's called Kumunjo, unless that's one of the other bugs. But I think they did make a few original ones. Like, I think the giant woolly mammoth creature was exclusive to this. And then it eventually leads to a, a second battle with Godzilla and King Ghidorah in the ocean, um, where they begin fighting again. And then they actually, they bring back the oxygen destroyer. I was not expecting that in this movie. Yeah, so the Oxen Destroyer in the original Godzilla from, from the 50s was... It was a an atomic weapon that's able to suck the oxygen out of water, uh, thus disintegrating and killing anything in its path. Which, in this movie, obviously does not kill Godzilla in the end, because this is like halfway through the movie. It just weakens Godzilla, but I found this really hard to buy. I would think either this weapon would be completely ineffective or totally effective based on my understanding of it. Right, because in the original movie, it's eventually what kills Godzilla. It disintegrates him into a skeleton. In this movie, it just kind of weakens him, and it has no effect on King Ghidorah. Uh, he just takes off to go sit on top of Rodan's volcano and rule there. So then they're all like, oh no, we, we hurt Godzilla. He was our only chance because he's the king of the monsters, you see. He, uh... He's the one. Okay, so Alex, I have not seen all of these Godzilla movies, but tell me, was there ever a monster hierarchy? Was there ever like Godzilla had control over the other monsters because he was the king? I mean, to some extent, Godzilla was the king of the monsters. Godzilla rules Monster Island and might even be able to convince other monsters to do things, but there was not a built-in telepathy where their roars are heard across the world and either Godzilla or King Ghidorah tells every other creature anywhere what to do, almost hypnotically. That was not... I mean, in some ways, some of this stuff was even goofier than some of the old things, which, again, I wasn't... As, I wasn't really anticipating in a movie that looks as serious as it does you're hitting the nail on the head of the massive misguided problem with this entire film the original godzilla movies 
were also, you know, like dumb and very silly, but they knew that. In fact, they leaned on it. It was the crutch that makes them so entertaining. Here, this movie still wants you to take it very seriously and care about this family and get involved in, in the in the moral dilemma of if we want to have giant skyscraper-sized monsters walking among us. And it really wants you to care and think about all of this. And it <laughs> fails so hard because you can't take any of it seriously because it's so dumb. And it doesn't help that the script and the characters are even dumber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, when King Ghidorah rolls after Godzilla's been weakened, and it causes all of these other monsters to wake up, and all of these other monsters all across the entire planet begin just wrecking all these cities, and it's revealed that, yes, whoever is deemed king of the monsters has a, like, a, a link to all the other monsters that allows them to control and order them. So if King Ghidorah's alive, that means all the other monsters are going to destroy things. But if they, but if Godzilla's alive, all the other monsters will want to live in peace, I guess. Yeah, it just broke down. Basically, their explanation was because Godzilla was the monster of the earth, but King Ghidorah was an alien. So that's why it's the bad guy who can do the same thing as Godzilla. I mean, to be fair, they've actually sort of done a similar plot to this before in some of the big Godzilla films, like Destroy All Monsters, and I believe they may have redone aspects of it in Final Wars, where, well, at least in um, Destroy All Monsters, they did have aliens come down and send waves to control the monsters, and you would get shots of various monsters throughout the planet causing havoc because... Um, they're being controlled by something else. But again, it wasn't usually King Ghidorah. It was usually the entities that sent down King Ghidorah. So, I mean, it's not inherently unthinkable that this could have been used as the storyline. But even if I think maybe that this isn't as unacceptable as Brandon was saying, it's not really that well executed anyway. So, just, it's, no. <laughs> No, because it wants you to take this completely at its word, just seriously. And so they realize they have to heal and resurrect Godzilla in order to uh, save the world. Oh, yeah, and that, their whole healing Godzilla is pretty goofy, too. And they made that try, and they made that really dramatic, and, like, there's the person sacrificing himself unnecessarily like they like to do in these films. To me, it felt like it was trying to be a homage to the guy that sacrifices himself at the end of the original Godzilla. However, it's stupid. Like, the, the motivation in the original Godzilla was that he sacrifices himself because he's the one that created the oxygen destroyer, the one that created the weapon. So if he dies, he hopes that no one else will be able to use it uh, and use him to, to recreate the weapon again. Here, the motivation is... Okay, so Godzilla's powered by radiation, so we need to blow up a nuke on him so that it powers Godzilla up, but we can't get too close to the nuke. Can we fire the nuke? Oh no, our weapon systems are down. Okay, so uh, we could set a timer, <laughs> set a timer on the nuke, but if we do that, one of us will need to get too close to the nuke and we'll eventually be destroyed by it because, the, because you know, even the radiation and heat emanating off of Godzilla would kill us. And I'm like, couldn't they just like drop it? 
like from above. Especially because that guy was already in a submarine or something to get down there. So he even could have went down and just left the nuke reasonably near Godzilla and then left because it's not like he fired a missile at him to my understanding, right? Exactly. So what ends up happening is is that uh, the main Japanese character who was also in Godzilla 2014 and kind of leads Monarch and is like the real proponent and the guy that likes Godzilla, he says, I'll do it. It's that movie scene. It really is. It's that movie scene to a very high degree. So we get this incredibly dramatic scene of him setting down the bomb, setting up the timer. He takes off his helmet and his suit because he's going to die anyway. And he walks up to Godzilla and puts his hand on Godzilla and Godzilla opens his eyes and looks at him. And the two look at each other in the eyes and form a deep understanding as he is blown up, blown up by the nuke. And it's like, oh my goodness, I am so tired of all arbitrary sacrifice scenes in movies. <laughs> okay. And that's not the only one in this movie. This movie has two of them. So Godzilla is powered up by the nuke. Godzilla gets up and he's now, <laughs> the characters comment, Godzilla's buff now. That radiation supercharged him. And so Godzilla looks bulkier. And uh, what happens is, is that the daughter of the mother and father, she runs away with the Orca <laughs> signaling device. She uses it to call King Ghidorah to a stadium. I don't know what her plan was. I think she was trying to lure King Ghidorah somewhere that Godzilla could get to. I'm not sure what she was doing. She lures King Ghidorah to to the stadium. King Ghidorah, of course, comes after the device and tries to kill her because she's an idiot. And <laughs> this whole plan was stupid. I don't know. I don't know what I'm, I'm trying to understand so many of the motivations in this movie. King Ghidorah comes after her. And then, of course, Godzilla shows up just in time so she doesn't die. Just in time. Yeah. If there was any doubt in your head. Nope. So then the final big battle begins uh, with Godzilla fighting King Ghidorah. Godzilla, King Ghidorah, and then also, at a point, Mothra fighting Rodan. Yeah, yeah, Rodan shows up, because earlier in the movie, Rodan had come out of his volcano, just like in the uh, King Ghidorah movie we talked about. Him and Mothra kind of uh, have it out. And I actually do like Rodan's design in this movie, how they gave him, like, permanent lava dripping off of his wings. <laughs> Even better than in the old movie, where they just would have a literally completely flat, unmoving puppet on a string that doesn't even flap its wings and you just hear sonic jet sounds coming out of it has its own silly appeal but i, I did i did like this design for rodan and i mean i liked the designs of the monsters in general i think obviously as you and i have talked about it does not have that even if this i mean godzilla is mo-capped like it is a guy in a mo-cap suit doing a lot of these movements but does not have the same appeal as just seeing a guy in a very detailed suit it's every Hollywood movie. It is giant CGI things hitting each other while explosions happen. And usually those things, I mean, you, I agree. Some of the, like Rodan's design did happen to be cool, but I was surprised that I don't even think that this was the most impressive I've seen a lot of the characters be, especially I was thinking King Ghidorah. I mean, it might've been more impressive than the one we had previously re reviewed where we see a lot of strings on the hokey monster design. But when they had a man in a suit for King Ghidorah after they really got to understand their craft, especially in like some of the stuff from the 2000s where they were still using a lot of puppets on top of a guy holding everything up, that was more impressive even than the perfect 
electric CG here. And I'm not just saying it was more magical, but I think some of it was more impressive. Of course, we're talking about the Japanese movies there, Alex, where they, they, they are a little more creative and varied with their special effects, while modern American movies, everything has to be computer-generated and seamless. But what I'm saying is, um, like, even if you really dug the 33 King Kong or the 76 King Kong, even if you just think there's a lot of whimsy to them, you're not going to say that those are more impressive than the 2005 or 2017 ones. Just visually impressive, but I these were not the most impressive I've seen the characters in this Godzilla one. Well, except Rodan, obviously. <laughs> Rodan has not been very impressive throughout most of his <laughs> history. <laughs> <laughs> no. The one thing I've been kind of talking about that did hold this movie up was that it did have some cute fan service throughout it. Godzilla's roar here and the roars of the other creatures are much closer to their original sounds uh, than like the 2014 movie had a very different roar for Godzilla. Here they, they change it to something a little closer to his original roar from the old movies. They also use um, Godzilla's theme from the old movies. Did they do that in the 2014 one when you revisited it or was that just in this one? No. No, the 2014 one never used any music from the original movies. Here, yes, like when uh, after Godzilla is healed by the radiation and he rises out of the ocean, they begin doing a remastered version of the original Godzilla theme, which does sound cool. Yeah, it, those, those were cool. And they also use it a bit during the fight with King Ghidorah after that. And yeah, that, that that's all works well because that's a great memorable theme, unlike the actual original music in these movies. Yeah, no, I don't remember any of the music besides... I thought the music in the 2014 Godzilla was trying, but it was not memorable. Like, the themes just did not stick out. So we get this big scene of the fight going on between King Ghidorah and Godzilla and Mothra and Rodan. The, meanwhile, the human characters are scurrying around trying to get out of... They're trying to find their daughter after she was attacked uh, and get her back. And also the military is helping Godzilla fight. Because their solution now is, is that if now that they, they have confirmed that Godzilla is the good guy... Their ultimate conclusion is that they must uh, work alongside him. However, I don't really understand this, but I think the nuke overcharged Godzilla or something because now his body is beginning to act like an actual nuclear reactor. In parallel to some of the storyline in Godzilla versus Destroyha, um, the last film with the original Godzilla or the second Godzilla, which was the one from Godzilla Raids again up until that point, unless they contradicted their own stories before. But anyways, in um, Godzilla versus Destroyha, the radiation through Godzilla's body finally was accumulating until into basically a reactor core, much like they did here, even if it was just because they blasted them with a missile at some point, And it also doesn't really seem to end up as badly because Godzilla doesn't explode or anything in, in this one. Yeah, yeah, like there's two things in this movie that they use, the oxygen destroyer and they also have Godzilla's body sort of glow red as it becomes more uh, nuclear until it explodes. But neither of these things that were used to kill Godzilla or, or did kill Godzilla in the older movies actually do anything to him here. <laughs> so it makes you wonder what the stakes of any of this are. <laughs> 
the fight goes on for a while. Godzilla, Godzilla begins to grow more and more red. Uh, King Ghidorah, King, King Ghidorah seems to get the upper hand sometimes. Sometimes Godzilla has the upper hand. And then King Ghidorah is able to take down Godzilla. And he, and King Ghidorah uh, begins to come after the human characters because I think the orca's signal is nearby and it's like attracting him. The human characters begin getting on their plane to run away. And then... Once again, we get a scene, this time with the mother character, the kind of our, our lead, where she picks up the orca, looks at King Ghidorah as he comes closer, looks at the plane with her family, and decides, no, I must go. And she runs away with the orca to lure King Ghidorah away from her family so they can escape. But you could have just dropped the orca and went. You didn't need to get in a car and drive it miles away and lure him you could have just i don't know thrown the orca or something and then just got on the plane and got away instead we get this big dramatic scene where she drives away in a car and king Ghidorah chases her until he destroys her vehicle with his lightning blast and that doesn't kill her though she just tumbles out of the car and then oh dear god Okay, so Godzilla begins to rev up. He begins to go just about nuclear and he, uh, you know, gets up, goes to go after King Ghidorah and the mother looks at King Ghidorah and says, long live the king, which made me laugh so hard because the line is silly, but for a modern audience, it just makes us think of Lion King. It's just silly, and I, I, oh man, it was probably my biggest laugh in the movie, and and which which is which is a saying something because the movie has a lot of jokes in it to be sure, a lot of humorous moments, but it was honestly the moments that it, I wasn't supposed to be laughing that I was laughing the most. Uh, King Ghidorah picks up Godzilla, lifts him into the sky. Uh, am I getting the sequence of events here wrong? Because then he like, I believe it's King Ghidorah lifts Godzilla into the sky, drops him. And when Godzilla hits the ground, that's when he detonates. Yeah, I should mention, we like just watched this movie like like a like a good half hour ago and we're already, it's all just dropping off. So yeah, Godzilla blows up. Presumably the mother died in the blast, but Godzilla's cool. He just, like, he doesn't even look damaged. He just gets up and he's like, whew. Well, good thing I let off all that radioactive steam. I'm good to go. Uh-huh. So the explosion presumably kills or severely wounds King Ghidorah because after that we get this kind of gruesome shot of Godzilla with one of King Ghidorah's heads in his mouth and he uses his, his radioactive uh, beam. Atomic breath, yep. He has atomic breath to disintegrate uh, King Ghidorah's head. And that was actually kind of cool. Yeah, that was neat. Like, and then we get a, f a funny little moment where one of the human characters looks over and goes, well, good thing he's on our side. Well, that actually had some significance here, too, because I don't know if they've used this before, but in here, King Ghidorah was a regenerator. So without completely destroying that head, you could question if it was going to grow into another Ghidorah, like a Hydra. Right. There's a few times in this movie where King Ghidorah regrows one of his heads after they're torn off. Which I thought the, the CG of those moments looked pretty neat just because of how, how gruesome it kind of looked seeing the head sort of grow back. And then it like tearing off the skin with its teeth so that it had room for the head to grow out of it. Yeah, that was all pretty neat. Oh, yeah. And then uh, Mothra and Rodan. Uh, Mothra kills uh, Rodan. Which, I yeah, that was not it's not every day I see a moth kill like a pterodactyl. Yeah, like Rodan has the upper hand for most of the fight. He kind of pins Mothra against a building and then Mothra uses her stinger to stab uh, Rodan through the throat, I think, or something along 
along those lines and it kills him. Yeah, that's what it was. Because at first I th- it looked like a stinger to me, but then I thought it must have been a leg because moths don't have stingers. Right. It looked like a stinger on the end of her, which, yeah, that confused me too. And that kills off her damn. And then it looked like Rodan clearly died at that, but then at the end of the movie, doesn't Rodan come back? Yes. I thought that Rodan was seen. So that whole thing also meant nothing. Well, that's the thing. I skipped a part where Mothra protects Godzilla from Gingadora, and Mothra uh, gets right in the way of Gingadora's lightning breath and is basically disintegrated by it, and her particles kind of fall down on Godzilla. But I'm wondering, is that the reason why Godzilla survived his own body exploding? Is that Mothra saved him? It definitely plays it out to look like that somehow rejuvenated Godzilla with moth dust. I don't don't know. I don't know either. (laughs) I mean, it definitely seems like that's what we were supposed to take from it, though, that somehow, yes, that brought more life to Godzilla. So then the father and the daughter mourn the death of the mother, and Godzilla wins, King Ghidorah is defeated, and we finally see Godzilla reclaim his throne as the king of the monsters, because then we get this shot of Godzilla looking around as all these other monsters. The monsters that were walking across the planet we saw earlier, we see some of them come up to Godzilla. That I, I, I guess they've just been walking around the planet. So they just walk up to Godzilla, and Godzilla looks at all of them, and they then bow. Rodan comes up to Godzilla. Rodan, I guess, is still alive, or, or maybe the radiation from Godzilla's blasted something to him. I have no idea. <laughs> Who cares? And Rodan then bows to Godzilla. All the monsters bow to their to their king. Godzilla, uh, you know, looks off and, you know, kind of roars or he might as well have just given the camera a thumbs up and then the movie ends. <laughs> yeah, and then it ends. And then before they get into the real credits, they play this Godzilla song that I've actually heard before, like an actual vocal song about Godzilla. And they um, they also update some of the music in that and they play that over um some cool art of various giant monsters and related things and sadly that was one of my favorite things actually after the movie was just done and this wasn't the movie anymore i thought that was kind of cool yeah yeah i liked the song and i liked and i did like both the opening and the closing credits how they're kind of like like you see a bit of a newspaper article and like the the uh credits for each of the people that made the movie is integrated into the article but then some of the parts of the article are then whited out to cover up things but then of course after the rest of the credits there's a after credit sequence where it looks like some terrorists or people have got access to king Ghidorah's head one of the heads that didn't get attended to so it's likely gonna grow back again the eco-terrorist the main villain who the movie just kind of forgets about after a while he shows up in the after credit scene he's in some sort of underground facility where they have located one of king Ghidorah's heads that survived godzilla's blast somehow and he and he says i'll take it because i guess he wants to resurrect king Ghidorah. <laughs> And if he wants to do that, fine. But I swear, they better not resurrect it for Godzilla versus King Kong. And they better not have King Kong and Godzilla team up to fight King Ghidorah. And I feel like there's a good chance that's what they're going to do. That is my biggest fear. That once again, drawing parallels to Batman versus Superman, we're going to have a scene of, of Godzilla and King Kong fighting, but then a bigger monster shows up and they have to team up so there's no definitive win to the fight. And that seems like something Hollywood would definitely do. Ugh. 
So after going through these three, this this trilogy of, of uh, varying degrees of monster films in this new Hollywood-made monster universe, I I can't say I have a ton of enthusiasm for Godzilla vs. Kong. Kong Skull Island was definitely the best of the three. Had the best characters, it had the most fun fight scenes. Some of the best monster design, I would say. The, the island had a lot of personality. Like, overall, that definitely the best movie. And what's great is, it's a period piece set in the 70s, so you can ignore the other movies. But of course you can't, because this is all gonna connect into Kong vs. Godzilla. I already have even looked at the casting list, and a lot of the characters from King of the Monsters do return in Godzilla vs. Kong. Right. Even in um that King Kong, even in Skull Island, I think there are several references to Godzilla in the film. And then in this Godzilla film, I mean, there are a lot of references to Skull Island, which granted sort of makes sense if they are looking at all the giant monster hotspots on the planet. This would be something that would come up a lot. So they don't necessarily shove it in your face as badly as they do some of the new superheroes coming in like Batman versus Superman's Dawn of Justice. It still does feel a little bit pushy, but again, it's not nearly that bad. I mean, they draw references to 2014 because of course that was the movie that came before and a lot of the a lot of the story reacts off of it. And they also do little references to Skull Island because there's, you know, there's other monsters living there. But yeah, yeah, I agree. Despite the usual tropes of so many of these cinematic universe movies feeling less like movies and more just like setups for other movies, this movie did did a fine enough job being its own film. It's just that that film wasn't very good. <laughs> yep. Again, taking pieces from the original Godzilla, from the one we actually reviewed last time a lot. Um, King Ghidorah, the three-headed dragon. Okay, the three-headed dragon. I would say it took a little bit from Destroy All Monsters and uh, Godzilla vs. Destroy Her, in particular aspects from those films, and it just doesn't do anything as good as any of those four films that I mentioned. Yep, tries to combine all these elements, but does not make up to a satisfying film. And I'm wondering if that, that problem... Much like Dawn of Justice did, you could call it the Dawn of Justice Syndrome, where they were trying to build up Justice League and do the death of Superman on top of doing Dark Knight Return all in one movie. Yes, and that's kind of the th problem I have with a lot of modern movies and a lot of cinematic universe movies in general, the, the lesser ones anyway, is that they don't feel like their own movies. They feel like movies that are just aping elements from everything else, thinking that if they put all of these references and elements from other things in there, it will add up to a great movie. And instead, what you get is a movie that is literally not the sum of its parts because those parts are being taken from things that are better when they're fleshed out and not just smashed together. Right. Uh, but yes, the final shot of the credits is a shot of a giant gorilla, giant Godzilla getting ready to fight. So the next movie is indeed going to be Kong versus Godzilla, which is what well, it will be our next uh, review, I believe. And at last, the end of the road to Godzilla versus Kong. And which when I did review the original King Kong versus Godzilla for one of our first episodes on uh, this podcast, I did say that... That film is a film that maybe could use a reboot to make it a little bit more friendly towards modern audiences. I have my doubts that it's going to, having a, a more appropriate film is going to mean that we get a good film. I don't think that the CG fight is going to compare to the hokey, but yet surprisingly intense 
fight we got in the original rubber-suited movie. But for whatever reason, I still have hope that this one is going to be better than the previous two. Because, again, it's the thing they have been building up to, so maybe they'll let it be its own movie at least. Hey, who knows? I want to give it a chance. I, I at least, I'm at least interested to see how the fight will go. I mean, that's pretty much the only reason that we go to some of these. <laughs> I'm very interested to see what happens to that dad. <laughs> yes, I, I'm very curious to see what happens to the stupid dad and the stupid daughter doing stupid things again. Thank you for enduring the MonsterVerse movies with me so far, Alex. Up to this point. Oh, of, of course. It, I mean, it was worth it because we got to go back and look at all the stuff that these movies were based off of instead. That's the fun thing is that going back to the older movies made me have appreciation for just how much better they were um, <laughs> in comparison to what we have now. But we'll see. All right. Well, thanks for joining me, Alex. Hi. Right, got it, Brandon. If you got through this whole episode, thank you so much. If you have any feedback or suggestions for movies you'd like us to cover, please send them to overthinkingmoviespodcast at gmail.com. For more episodes of Overthinking Movies, as well as for more podcasts by my team of talented co-workers, go to goldhitswkva.com, wchx1055.com, and star967.com. And should you see these MonsterVerse movies... If you want to catch up to Godzilla vs. Kong story-wise, you could, but all in all, I don't know how necessary it is, because frankly, most of the lore you're missing has to do with the human characters. And they're not very interesting. If I were to transcribe each movie into sounds, Kong Skull Island would be a, yeah. Godzilla 2014 would be a, uh, And Godzilla King of the Monsters would be a, no, 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 why? That's finally a wrap.